Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone, Dr. Mercola, helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by Kashif Khan, who is the founder and CEO of the DNA company, which is one of many companies, I believe one of the better ones though, that can analyze your DNA privately, not like 23andMe and sending all your data off to the drug companies uh, and all the facts about you, which we don't want to do. So uh, we'll probably talk a little bit about his company today, but the primary reason I have him on today is uh, he's really uh, quite knowledgeable in the area of endotoxin. And with my new appreciation of bioenergetic medicine uh, and it's, has a that biogenic medicine has a major uh, component of it, which is concerned about endotoxin being a primary culprit of chronic degenerative diseases. So understanding that in greater detail and uh, knowing what one can do about it can be of enormous value to most, most of us. So I'm really excited to dive in and explore this topic. So uh, with all that, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Pleasure, man. Good to be here. Yeah, and I neglected to mention in your bio that your um, people will detect pretty quickly that you have a pretty thick Canadian accent, and <laughs> you are you immigrated, your family immigrated, I believe, to uh, Vancouver. So, and that's where you you uh, grew up and uh, where you currently uh, live and, and uh, run your company. Is that right? Well, yeah, I grew up in Vancouver, moved to Toronto. Um, oh, okay. I didn't realize you're you're in Toronto now. Okay. Yeah, so I used to have a Vancouver accent. Now it's changed it to a Toronto accent. Was what I'm told. <laughs> I didn't know there was a difference between a Vancouver and a Toronto accent. I didn't until I developed both of them. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, um, and we actually uh, met, met briefly again, not for the first time, but just recently at the Orlando Biohacking Conference, uh, where you presented there and uh, actually gave a pre-conference multiple hour presentation to help people understand about some of the work that you're doing. So um, let's dive in. Cause I, I was confused when I first uh, found out that you really knew endotoxin well. So, cause it's not, it doesn't seem to be not consistent, but something that one expects from, from someone who's running a company about that, uh, uh, looking at DNA analysis. So maybe you can help us understand the connection of how you develop an expertise in this area. Sure. So what we've understood, uh, so not only this, but, you know, everything that's proliferated in, in the, the world we now live in today, um, the biggest area where we're seeing a, a flood of people coming in is in the female health world. Mm -hmm. And not that this is an answer for everybody, but what we're seeing is that all these women are coming in uh, and concerned about how they feel uh, and has been labeled as an endotoxin problem. Mm -hmm. And we're diving in and seeing that about 30% of them are misdiagnosed and it's actually an estrogen toxicity problem. And what it's the same symptoms, same complaints, same everything. 
And we know that endotoxins are a concern. And so that concern is sort of being taught in functional medicine. And this one big bucket is being underserved. So, and this is not, not happening in one place. It's happening in multiple places where it's also the mycotoxins that we chat about a little bit too, where that's also being misdiagnosed. misdiagnosed. But um, so a big area where we end up supporting and helping is actually looking at the hormone pathway and seeing what toxic hormones are people making. And so this is one piece of the conversation, right? It's, it's one slice, but it's a big slice where people that are stuck, where really the most help is needed. I just can't get fixed. I've taken every supplement. I've taken every binder. I've done everything for, to fight inflammation and it's still not working. And this is where we're finding the people that are stuck over and over and over again, whether it's men producing DHT that's causing inflammation or women producing 4-hydroxyestrogen or 16-hydroxyestrogen as this constant trickle of inflammation representing the same symptoms, same everything, they're just not getting help. They're not getting fixed because that's what's actually driving the symptoms that are getting put into this bucket. Right? And we, we keep seeing this over and over again. Okay, well, that's a... Uh, I didn't realize you had uh, looked into this, but that's bit another very important part of the complex puzzle that uh, makes up bioergenic medicine, because estrogen is viewed as a very, very toxic hormone most of the time. Of course, it's necessary and required for reproduction and healing of wounds and such. But most of the time, men and women and men have too much and controlling them and getting back to normal is a big part of the equation. So I'll, I'll, I'll we'll go, go into that in a little bit, but I want to finish up on endotoxin first. So um, my understanding is that it is a component of the cell wall of gram-negative bacteria. And the reason why, and then when the bacteria die, then it releases this, it's a lipopolysaccharide. In other words, it's a lipid and a sugar tied together. And it, once it goes into your, typically if it's in the intestine, it's, good, it's a pretty potent inflammatory mediator, increases uh, leaky gut, and uh, just accelerates inflammation and general disease pathology. So, and one of the primary reasons it's manifested or, or contributors to it is the fact that people have a, a microbiome that isn't optimally balanced. It's more uh, anaerobic with gram negatives. And that is the primary culprit so if you've got a lot of gram negatives and you're feeding them fuel, and what is the fuel? The fuel is essentially carbohydrate or polymers of carbohydrates that, which are frequently called complex carbs that you are unable to digest in your upper intestinal tract. And they make their way down to the large intestine where the most of the microbes reside. And then that's where they serve as fuel for these gram negative bacteria producing endotoxin. Yeah. Uh, and endotoxin is intimately related to serotonin, which is another misconception along with estrogen. And serotonin is typically thought of the, the happy hormone and really uh, increasing levels of it is going to help your health. But no, in fact, serotonin is mostly, 95% of it is produced in the gut. And it, its first name was not serotonin. It was, uh, it was enero, enero, something meaning the gut, enero. Toxin might have been endotoxin. I don't know. I think about what was endotoxin, but but that was clearly the name was given that identified its primary 
source of uh, being made is being the, the gut. So that's that's another problematic area. So maybe you can expand on that and then we can dive over to estrogen. Sure. So yeah, we've seen the same thing um, between endo and mycotoxins where you have this hydrolysis, you take these complex carbs and they're converted into glucose, a simple, you know, start or sugar. And they're they're sort of colonizing the carb, mm-hmm. right? And owning it. This uh, is in the gut. This is in the gut, right? This is in the gut, yeah. And th- this is the misconception, by the way, that it's not just what's coming in but mm-hmm. it's what's already there proliferating more mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah absolutely went, absolutely right? yeah. and so we're always thinking about what did i inhale what did i eat that's step one that's kind of like filling mm-hmm. the bucket but then you have this reservoir that's existing that continues to cause problems right mm-hmm. and it continues because you're as you're taking in the same uh grains or whatever that maybe brought the toxin in the first place they're also colonizing and feeding on them as they're in your system. And we looked at the metabolic pathway and when we saw there's an actual gene expression change. So there's a, in, in say mycotoxin and endotoxins where the, there's a gene expression change at, at, triggered by nutrition or environment. This is why mold and other things are causing a problem for certain toxins. And that triggers this uh, production of enzymes uh, like uh, and proteins like amylase and you know cellulase to then uh, convert the fuel that they're consuming into the building blocks of the ensuing toxins like mycotoxins for example, right? Mm-hmm. So you have this internal combustion engine of making more and more, and the genes are being triggered in the actual toxin to make more of the outcome of this, you know, inflammatory toxin, and so it's happening on the inside too. That's what people don't see and get is you're treating the let's block it let's fix things right and let's bind and clear but if you're not dealing with innate say fungal overgrowth or toxin overload you're still making more of it and this is why healing the gut is so we often look at um uh the 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 gut as the source of what you need to work on in terms of all of this stuff being resolved uh, it's also liver and it's also rest because it's not just, again, what's coming in. It's also what you make on the inside. So people need to think about that. And they're not thinking about it, that. It, it, it's also what's inside, right? Okay. So I'm beginning to understand the connection between the mycotoxin and endotoxin. So endotoxin typically was related to the bacteria, the gram negative yes. bacteria, but the mycotoxin could be things like fungal fungus and yeast, and yes. which, which most everyone is familiar with the yeast syndrome in Canada. So I suspect that that would be included in the mycotoxins that you're discussing or mentioning. Exactly. And that's okay. why a good yeast will actually help resolve. Like we're, we're, there's medication that people are taking, but there's, you know, things like uh, bifidobacteria and uh, lactobacillus that actually help resolve this stuff just mm-hmm. by repopulating the gut flora mm-hmm. uh, and having a positive environment versus a negative environment. Uh, healing the gut is one source of healing this stuff. Yeah, and you meant the 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 organisms you mentioned were actually bacteria, uh, probiotics. Uh, but the yeah. good yeast would be something like Saccharomyces boulardii. Saccharomyces, yeah, exactly, yeah, 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 exactly. So, which is a, 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 an interesting. Uh, you can't market it as such because the FDA will put you in jail or fine you heavily. Certainly send you a letter, but uh, yeah. Saccharomyces boulardii is what many people and physicians prescribe, at least knowledgeable physicians, to individuals who for whatever reason uh, need to take antibiotics because that Saccharomyces is not killed by an antibiotic. Right. So, 
can be used. <laughs> but if you if you say that in the marketing material, it's no good. You will get a serious fine. Yeah, <laughs> even no, though it's true. Know. Even though it's true. We've seen it over again, over again that Saccharomyces, like somebody that's um, when they're trying to bind and clear and, and heal, this is the one thing that sort of gets them over the edge. It's that catalyst that just works. The Saccharomyces? Yeah. And that's for a general increase in mycotoxin exposure that you find. And how do you how do you assess mycotoxin? Is there a specific test that you're checking this? Well, there's there's two layers to it. There's you can yeah, there's oats test, there's a Great Plains test that looks for uh, markers that you can interpret for that context, right? Mm -hmm. The one thing that we don't look at, which is also very difficult to test for, um, is what we call VOCs. So it's these mm -hmm. volatile organic compounds. So it's the smell. So when you're thinking about not going to mold and mycotoxins. We think it's the mycotoxin itself, which is this airborne, or the, or the fungus, I should say. Uh, there's also the off-gassing of chemicals, these what we call VOCs that are really making us sick um, beyond the, the mycotoxin itself. And this is, we don't fix this problem. It's hard to test for. So just your question leads me there. It's something that we actually don't test for. We don't know how to test for. And so we don't know what's there, but it's one of the major causes. And you'll see this clearly where areas where there's a elevated level of that musty smell mold there's also elevated asthma because that same voc the chemical is destroying the respiratory tract right and it's causing this so uh that's an area that needs that's more liver support you know that's more detox support and we're not solving that problem and this is why people get stuck in their toxic symptomatic you know world because there's a whole other load that they're not dealing with because we don't test for it doesn't even don't even know it's there so is the voc something separate from the mycotoxin certainly uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah so there are two different aspects so the mycotoxin directly could be an issue and then the associated voc that's that typically accompanies the fungal or mold infection yeah it's it's the majority of the problem i would say so you know the mycotoxins aren't as airborne as we think they are um they're it's it's usually the that musty smell the voc the chemicals that are causing that innate problem hmm. the majority of these toxins we get are actually from food you know mm -hmm. if you look at um our food supply these food stuffs as we call them things that are the foundation for processed foods 25 percent of them have mycotoxins already in them mm -hmm. you know um the, but the funny thing about that and it speaks to you know how this stuff is um uh, where it comes from the temperature and the the, the environment only 10 percent of it has it before shipping so it happens in containers it happens in the shipping and now all of a sudden you have 60 to 80 percent of the development of it happening during at the port you know during handling uh, as opposed to innate in the product mm -hmm. and that's why the more globalized the food supply the food supply chain is the more prolific this problem is becoming um so it's it's yeah, yeah so food is a big driver and this is why it goes back to what we said earlier that carb environment is an amazing catalyst and they they love to sort of captivate and colonize that area and that same and food food stuff mm -hmm. is now globally trafficked and in the environment that is causing that gene expression for the stuff to proliferate right yeah so it's it's actually the transportation could be considered another component of food processing uh, right. that can lead to its deterioration. So 
I would assume this is true for a lot of whole foods that we're eating that we purchase in the grocery store that aren't grown locally, not at the farmer's market. And because of this transportation issue, they have an opportunity. They're picked long before they're ripe or uh, maybe even given things like ethylene oxide to accelerate the ripening during the, tr- the transportation but process. And I, and I have no idea of the logistics of that process. I don't know if it's a few days, a few weeks, or even longer to get it from where it's grown, uh, typically in s- Central American countries, um, or certainly tropical or subtropical areas, to the local gro- grocery store where we shop. So, but But your s- suspicion or observation is that the the increase in these contaminants occurs largely in whole foods first of all you know things yeah. like ripe fruits and vegetables occurs during the transportation process yeah we've seen over and over again that the, the number goes from 10% contamination to 25% by the time it goes from source to destination wow. right and um and it by the way just to answer your question how long does it take Mm-hmm. An apple that you buy in a grocery store may have been shipped a year. Prior. No way. Yeah. A year ago? Yeah. And it doesn't make sense, but we have. So what's done is there's this um, gas chamber, mm-hmm. literally, that uh, applies a uh, coating that prevents it from ripening. And this, I'm not talking about appeal. I'm not talking about new stuff. Mm-hmm. This has been going on for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's another gas chamber that it gets put into to distribute locally, which then extracts that really toxic stuff supposedly it's been removed from the outer mm-hmm. you know from the peel but we don't know how much enters the fruit into the flesh during that mm-hmm. year it's actually a year it's unbelievable but that's how long it, and that's why again another reason that this stuff is so contaminated because it's been sitting around and moved around so many times and th- this is done because the given you know the convenience of you can walk into a store anywhere and buy anything you want from anywhere in the world how do you make sure that that never breaks, right? You And there's a constant flow and backlog of stuff to support that never breaking. And that's why it's literally up to a year. That's interesting. You know, uh, I spent this last winter mostly in Central America uh, and Mexico. And it was interesting because obviously, well, maybe it's not so obviously, but for those who don't know, apples really only grow in the north. They do not grow in subtropical environments. So they have to be yeah. imported. And I found it odd that you really could not find a good apple. <laughs> you couldn't find one. They yeah. were all mushy and just, you know, so I learned pretty quickly to never buy apples there, at least during the winter. Maybe they're better in the summer. I don't know. But I guess there's another there's other has to be other elements of the transportation process that uh, contribute to that, because even with those things, it still was pretty, pretty rotten when you when you purchased it. Yeah, for sure. It's uh, and it's it's not just that it's like the once it gets on site, remember, these things are delivered in a way where they're designed to expire right uh fruit does expire we know that mm-hmm. the timing of it is at least uh, healthy food does mcdonald's i don't think expires yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true you can keep it with you for a few years and still be good yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah but proper food is meant to expire and so it's timed that way but it's think of it as like a thawing that things go through but it's more of a chemical thawing mm-hmm. and so this is why the innate structure of it isn't what it feels like it's supposed to be you know, once it's globalized and moved to a different area, because it took a year to get to that different area. Okay. So once these uh, mycotoxins 
or endotoxins are observed uh, or considered as to be a, an issue with their presenting symptoms, what are the strategies that you use? I know, I know for endotoxins, it's pretty simple. Well, maybe not so simple, but uh, depending on how severe the endotoxin contamination is, you can go to the point of sterilizing the gut, taking mm-hmm. things like activated charcoal, which will, which is a binder, and you don't want to do that permanently, but you can do that periodically to clear out some of the endotoxin. And you can even use antibiotics, typically things like the penicillins and uh, tetracyclines or quinones, which are tend to be a little less dangerous. Can you also be used to sterilize? I'm not advocating that. I'm just suggesting that that is one option. Um, so, and then of course, to reduce the fuel that you're feeding them, which yeah. would be to make sure that you're not eating these complex carbs that can break down and serve as future substrate for producing more of the mycotoxin or endotoxin. So what are the strategies? That was the endotoxin I just described. What about the mycotoxin? How can you? Uh, so it's, it's similar that? for both. Cause even in what you just, so for mycotoxin, we're still targeting the gut, right? So it's similar okay. for both, but what, where do people get stuck? is they're saying, okay, great. You just told me something, but it didn't work. And Mm -hmm. often those people have a gut issue beyond this issue, leaky gut, for example. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the solution they're trying to use isn't actually being, you know, it's not working in the gut because the gut itself is damaged. So often we find we have to heal the gut before we start healing the toxin issue. Uh, And the signs are, you know, constipation, diarrhea, uh, you know, if if your gut is off when you start to heal, uh, you also have to make sure that there's an exit. If you're if you're mm-hmm. constipated and if you're not moving it, so you're building up all these toxins to hit a wall. You know, so yeah. your elimination is so important, and you have to fix that first. So one of the so yes to charcoals, yes to clays, you know, yes to things like chlorella. Build it up because you can overdo that. Um, and the bacteria, as we talked about earlier, the yeast we talked about earlier. One really cool thing we're finding that we find that there's you know, sometimes solutions that aren't labeled for a particular problem, but they work. Even mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. world, they're off-label, right? So we're finding that the uh, the minerals, when you have proper humic and fulvic minerals, are doing a really good jo- job of drawing uh, sort of intracellular and um, uh, the cellular membrane healing, which is happening with endotoxins, right? The damage of the membrane. Mm-hmm. So... Because fulvic minerals have this really, really unique attribute where they have this charge to be able to bring nutrients into the cell. And once they do that, they release, they actually flip their charge to draw toxins out and they bring them back out with them. And so we're finding people that are taking good minerals are healing much faster if they're taking the right stuff because there's this double whammy of healing the gut, taking out what's in the blood, but also intracellular cell membrane wise. Uh, it's in this, it's a unique phenomenon that happens with these fulvic minerals. Bring it in, draw it out. It's as if they're designed to do these two jobs. It's like a tramp- transport system. Uh, there's drugs that people can take, like there's cholesterol, cholesterol, uh, sorry. Cholesteramine. Uh, yeah, cholesteramine, sorry. Uh, and we find some people, you know, feel. It's, that's basically a binder. It's a binder. It's, it's yeah. kind of like activated charcoal. Yeah. So it's a binder. It's, it gets prescribed. We feel a lot of people feel off. So you don't need to go there. There's so much more you can do before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's liver, liver and bile support. You know, mm-hmm. um, if you're, you have to have, so make sure that those two systems are firing properly. 
Because again, if the limited pathways, pathways, detox pathways are not all on, then what you buy and get stuck, you know? So it's thinking about all of these pieces and putting them together and often taking it slow. People feel like, okay, it's been three weeks. I don't feel better. You know, it can take two years. You know, it can literally, and that's probably the right amount of time. If you're going to build a protocol mm-hmm. that's st- like uh, sort of longitudinal, it sticks with you. Uh, and you're not just masking a symptom to feel better. It's going to take time. It's not a question of weeks. It literally for successful people, it's like two years and I'm finally out of this. Hmm. That's what it takes. Yeah, that's not surprising. Not surprising at all. So yeah. the getting back to the enterotoxin, um, it actually activates the release of serotonin in the gut, which is a right. major, major problem. And, and and I'm sure most people listening to this have heard of this, the the disease process called serotonin syndrome, which is we have excess serotonin. And one of the signs of that is what, what one of the symptoms you mentioned earlier, which is loose stools or diarrhea. So if you're having that and you have these other symptoms, it's highly likely you've got serotonin going on, excess serotonin, which is not a good thing. And if uh, you're one of the 40% of adult women in the United States over 40 that uh, that are taking an SSRI. <laughs> That's an, you want to find a knowledgeable physician and wean yourself off of that as soon as possible. Yeah, uh, and uh, really, really important. I, I'm not suggesting that you're not suffering with depression and may need some support, but there are other safer ways to do it. I mean, even some of the original antidepressants were the tricyclic antidepressants, were were a type of antihistamine. And interesting, when I went out, first graduated medical school in the mid '80s. I put a lot of people on antidepressants, and this was before the SSRIs came out. They didn't come out until like the late '70s or early '80s, and I got pretty good results with those. The, things like Elevil or Amitriptyline and Nortriptyline, and uh, they're still available. They can be used, but there's other drugs that are that act like them. Something ones many of that are commonly available over the counter. Things like Benadryl or Diphenhydramine, mm. which is an antihistamine and has it is can block serotonin quite effectively. And uh, famotidine, uh, which is a uh, anti ulcer pill, also called Pepsid. It's over the counter. It used to be a prescription, but and it still is. But you can buy it over the counter at a lower dose. And uh, then there's things like cyproheptidine or periactin that uh, all of them potent antihistamines. The the famotidine has the benefit of not making you sleepy. The cyproheptidine can actually be used as a sleeping pill. It's Mm -hmm. so, it's consistently effective. So, so there's a lot of people taking sleeping pills like, like Ambien or Restoril, which is not a good thing. So if you're out, you happen to be one of those people, you definitely, the benzodiazepines are not something to be hooked they're good to be hooked on. So you can use something like cyproheptidine, which would help reduce your serotonin levels, which is really, really important. And you can also look at lowering the ingestion in your food of tryptophan, which is interesting mm. because of all the amino acids that we, we take, that is the, in food, that is the one at the lowest concentration. You know, nature knows it's not a good idea to have a lot of tryptophan. So you need some, I mean, because tryptophan converts to serotonin, serotonin converts to melatonin, which we of course need, but you want it in the right amount. So excess is not a good, going to be a good, good, good strategy at all. So you've got to, those are things that you can look at. Are there any other strategies that you could add to that? Yeah. The one thing we've seen, it's not, um, so when it comes to the serotonin issue, it's not often about, I shouldn't say not often, not always about production. It's more about utilization. Mm-hmm. So we can predict somebody's, 
genetic propensity to actually use serotonin. They're the, literally the length of the receptor. Mm. Right? When somebody has the shorter receptor, it's not like they're producing less, but they can't use it. They can't utilize it efficiently. And so these people are often constantly irritable. They're mm -hmm. very distractible. It becomes hard for their brain to prioritize stimulus because they don't have the right receptor to actually bind and experience the stimulus as it should be, right? And so they appear to be irritable and distractible. So those are traits, by the way, for someone who hasn't been genetically tested to sort of pick at yourself and see, is this me, mm -hmm. right? If things annoy you a lot, if things bother you, if you have trouble staying asleep, not falling asleep, but staying asleep in the second half of night, there's another trait of serotonin dysregulation. And so it's the receptor, again, can be shorter, genetically predeterminable. And all of a sudden, the serotonin you're making, you're not binding and utilizing. So it's free flowing to cause the problems you're talking about. Mm -hmm. right? uh, and 5-HTTLPR is the name of the gene that you look at. 5-HTP supplements are a very easy way to help you bind and utilize. It basically activates the receptor, right? So, so if you're feeling off, it's one thing to look at levels. It's another thing to look at um, utilization. So you can try 5-HTP, which is, you know, outside of that, it's it's fairly harmless as a mood regulating supplement. Well, I don't know if it's harmless. I, I'm pretty opposed to using that typically. Yeah. Because, well, it's a precursor for making more serotonin. Right. Your body can use it to make serotonin. The less, the last thing almost anyone wants to do is to make serotonin. I mean, it right. is not good. It's it's probably not as bad as estrogen, which we're going to talk about next, but it's still not a good, good one. You do not want high levels of serotonin. You want no, the good ones like dopamine and GABA. Those are the ones you want a lot of. Uh, but, but, you know, there's not many drugs that address those. There's a few, but not many. But a simple one, it's not even a drug. It's an amino acid, and it's gotten a lot of play recently in the uh, longevity space, and that's glycine. The, yeah. the smallest amino acid can be uh, actually GABA agonist and actually stimulate neurotransmitters itself. So that's a simple one that, that you know, has been shown to be pretty closely, closely, strongly correlated with in, increased longevity. Mm. Uh, I think large, for many reasons, for the neurotransmitter reasons, but also because it's such an essential component of, component of, gly of collagen, and uh, it's the most common amino acid in, in collagen. It's like 30% of collagen, which is the most common protein in our body is glycine. So it has a lot of good benefits and it balances out methionine, which is negatively correlated longevity. If you have an excess of methionine, you, you will not live as long for sure, unless you're having a lot of glycine with it to balance it yeah. out. Yes, sir. So um, anyway, so let's let's transition into estrogen because that sure. is, uh, boy, I have not really done a lot of this on the site yet. I've, I've understood it probably for the last six months, but we really haven't dived deep with anyone on the dangers of it. Uh, interestingly, uh, I used to be a paid consultant for the drug companies in the mid 80s they used to fly me around and pay me to speak to physician groups about estrogen replacement therapy wow. and i was totally brainwashed totally yeah. brainwashed and you know it, it, as i was with the vaccines too i mean i i i i believed it hook line sinker but up until like in the 80s sometime uh but so estrogen is not something that's good for you. 
for most of, I mean, you do not want to increase your levels. You do not want to go on estrogen replacement therapy, even bioidentical organic or, or, or estrogen replacement therapy. You want to, that you can go on other forms of hormone, but not estrogen. So yeah. why don't, why don't you share with us your insights on the estrogen? We can go in that and maybe look into some of the, the androgenic steroids too, like uh, testosterone, sure. dihydrotestosterone and DHEA. Yeah, it's it's certainly one of our biggest toxic threats today, mm-hmm. uh, especially given that our, you have to think of it contextually. Our context today is not grandma's context. The hormone disruption and estrogen mimics we're dealing with, mm-hmm. you already have too much. And mm-hmm. now adding more through hormone replacement therapy or birth control pills or whatever. So we're already in a context where it's a threat. So you have to t- pay attention to it. Uh, so the, the layers you have to look at are dominance. So what do I make? Am I more androgenized? Am I more estrogenized? And you can predict that through the genes that metabolize each step of the cascade. So here's a hormone cascade, progesterone to testosterone to estrogen. What do I do in each one of those steps? And so many women and men, by the way, are estrogen dominant and just produce way too much. So step one, you're already at the at a high level. And, and, and is, that, is that likely because of the aromatization, the conversion from those... It's the, a, it's aromatization. It's a conversion of, so CYP19A1 converts testosterone into estrogen. So you can actually, that's why aromatase inhibitor, inhibitors work well, because you're mm-hmm. just blowing the gene expression down in that one location, and all of a sudden you have more free-flowing testosterone. Mm-hmm. Right? So now you've done this, your dominance is determined. Uh, what do you then convert it into? For women and men, by the way, there's three pathways that your estrogens convert into potentially before you clear them. And these metabolites are two, four and 16 hydroxyestrogen. Two is the good clean stuff you want and four and 16 are toxic. And we've seen over and over again, when we're dealing with a breast cancer patient, ovarian cancer patient who was told, you have BRCA, go cut your breasts off. <sighs> and then they're just getting ovarian cancer instead or mm-hmm. vice versa right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's because of this. So BRCA is a repair tool. It's just supposed to fix things. It doesn't cause anything. Uh, but these two metabolites, the four and 16, we're seeing this is where, you know, elevated cancer risk, et cetera, actually comes from uh, highly inflammatory. Let's just say that. So we know all chronic conditions are rooted in these things in, in inflammation. Uh, for men, by the way, the 16 hydroxy pathway, we're seeing a very close connection to testicular cancer. Mm-hmm. So very tied together. I would imagine uh, prostate would be in there too, because prostate and breast are real similar. So prostate, we're gonna when we go to the androgen pathway, it's the mm-hmm. dihydrotestosterone that's fueling the prostate uh, hyper, like the enlargement and the the cancer. So that's what we're kind of seeing when we're looking at families where mother has breast cancer, son has testicular cancer. They're both sixteen hydroxy uh, fast. They they just produce too much. The genes are aggressive there, right? Um, so now then you look at the detox pathway. So the kind of three phases, dominance, uh, what am I making in terms of toxicity, and then clearance. And why it's important to look at all three, you then know where to intervene, right? You know, is it a supplement? Is it aromatase inhibitor? Is it a detox support that I need? Like, where do I actually need to focus? Because which part of the cascade is actually broken or a little too aggressive? Mm-hmm. And it's the same detox pathways we hear about all the time. They're just reapplied here, which is the glutathione pathway, antioxidation, uh, superoxide uh, super uh COMPT, which is the tail end of methylation. So COMPT is really important for clearing toxic estrogens. Uh, 
And then up at the top, there's glucuronidation, which deals with some of the androgen toxins. So going back to what you said, you know, if you, if you take a hormone therapy and add it, and then you start to look at this cascade, what are most women getting? They're getting estradiol typically, uh, the gene that converts your estrogens into 4-hydroxyestrogen, which is the cancer fuel, truly, estradiol converts into that. So if you have a woman who is already teetering on the edge of poor health because she converts into one of these buckets and you give her estradiol, you've just given the raw ingredients to fuel this. And then all of a sudden, inflammation through the roof. And where did this breast cancer come from? I'm dealing with that literally today with a family where there's breast cancer in mm -hmm. a woman that previously had ovarian cancer. Mm -hmm. And what's what happened in those two parts of her life? Two years prior to the breast cancer in menopause, by the way, uh, she started her hormone replacement therapy. Mm. And she, she took estradiol mm. and 4-hydroxy fast. So literally fueled. And keep in mind, menopause, you don't have a menstrual cycle anymore. So you're not clearing that toxin. It just gets stored in fat. That's mm -hmm. what your body does with it, which is why it gets, why you have inflammation in the breast. That's where you have so much fat as a woman. Uh, take it back a couple of decades when she had the ovarian cancer, it's because she was on the birth control pill for eight years, right? So same thing. She was fueling more estrogen into that bucket that she converted into 4-hydroxyestrogen, which caused ovarian cancer at that time. Same problem. The root is the estrogen dominance and toxicity. <clears throat> so now in men, we see things like gynomastia. We see things like, you know, uh, loss of libido, hair loss. And you're seeing that in numbers now today more than ever before. There, there's no manly men, right? Where did they all go? <laughs> and we, we have estrogens in our water. Like that's what estrogens don't break down. They're like forever chemicals. So when a woman flushes her tampon in the toilet, or her birth control pill that she peed out and some guy drinks it, you know, months later, at once it gets past filtration and sanitation, you're still taking the estrogens in. They're still there. They haven't been broken down. So um, this is a challenge is that the total load just keeps increasing and increasing and increasing and increasing and we're all exposed to it. So we have to think about not only what we make and who we are, but it's in this context of this estrogen toxic soup where it's everywhere already. So the total load is far too much. Yeah. You know, and many people aren't aware of it, but estrogen of all the hormones is the most polyunsaturated, the ones with the most double bonds in it, which is why they're so pernicious. And I'm uh, really fond of helping people understand that linoleic acid is clearly the most important toxin food in your food supply, and you've got to minimize it. Uh, and interestingly, and the reason I mentioned that is linoleic acid and estrogen are, have many similarities. They probably have the same mechanism of action for increasing its pathology at a molecular level. What do they do? They both increase the influx of calcium into the cell. Normally, calcium is much higher outside the cell. How much higher? Like 50,000 times higher. It's a lot higher. So it's be, so it's when it's into the cell, it's a very important regulatory signal. And one of the things it does when it gets uh, in, increased at higher levels than it's anticipated is really similar to how it causes, we believe it causes pathology in it when you're exposed to EMF, excessive EMF, uh, like your cell phone or Wi-Fi. 
the increased calcium causes you to increase superoxide and nitric oxide, and they combine nearly instantaneously to form this really dangerous uh, uh, free uh, uh, reactive nitrogen species called peroxynitrite. And that lasts like a thousand times longer than hydroxyl free radicals. So even though it's not as um, damaging acutely as hydroxyl, it probably is collectively more dangerous because it lasts a thousand times longer. And because it lasts so much longer, it can go outside the cell into other cells and just hang around and continue to damage tissue. So that's one of the mechanisms, how it works and why it's so, so important to make sure you're doing everything you can to keep your estrogen levels as low as possible, because it's just not good. And if you, I mean, normally in, in excess, which it is in most people, including men, it, it, in, in my view, the, 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 it's the deadly combination that contributes to almost all the cancers, excess linoleic acid and excess estrogen. You, mm. you control those two and you are going to radically reduce, if not eliminate your risk for cancer. You know, it's just just absolutely imperative you do it. And, and there fortunately are simple interventions and strategies you can do to counteract that. And we kind of mentioned some of it. We'll go into some of the others. So well, so why don't you highlight your best strategies for minimizing? And and, and you mentioned that four, four hydroxy and the six, six? 16. 15, 16. So are there tests to measure that, like urine or blood tests? Yeah. So um, there's two ways to do it. You can use genetics to understand how you metabolize so you already understand the cascade and that allows you to answer a question in any context you know your innate wiring so you kind of can already predict by adding or subtracting what your net result is going to be because you already know how you utilize this stuff mm -hmm. then there's the dutch tests you know which is the sort of standard a lot of people that do hormone replacement therapy use the dutch test along the way to monitor um, and so it does look at the metabolites uh, a lot of clinicians aren't so trained on interpreting the metabolites. They're looking at the estrogen itself because mm -hmm. they think like, I put estrogen in, let's look at how much is there and not understanding that there's genes that metabolize and turn into different things. For example, we work with, I'm in Toronto, so we work with a lot of NHL hockey players on training. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was this phenomenon we went through in 2019 where a bunch of them were coming to us with man boobs, gynomastia. Mm -hmm. And we found out that there was a new trend of taking this androgel pack. So it's a the gel that goes in your stomach, androgens, testosterone enters your bloodstream. And the thinking is, I gave you testosterone, you should have more testosterone. Right, right. Right. But again, looking at the aromatase. So aromatase. The CYP, yeah, it just some men have the fast CYP19A1 gene that converts it all into estrogen. So it's like I gave you testosterone, but your body's saying turn that into estrogen. And that's what you're doing with it. So knowing how to intervene, all those gentlemen needed was an aromatase inhibitor, just block the estrogen conversion. And then I have, I already make enough testosterone. I'm just converting into something I don't need. Right. So, um, yeah, so that's where, uh, knowing where to intervene in that cascade makes things a lot easier. And most of the times where we already have the raw ingredients, we just need to plug into the right place with the right supplement or the right, uh, either speed something up or slow something down. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're going to, I mean, I'm not opposed to hormone replacement therapy, just the right hormones is what you need. In fact, I take hormone replacement therapy, uh, but pretty base foundational. The, the, the master hormone is pregnenolone. That is right. the base hormone that converts to everything. And that's not as likely. I mean, it can aromatize, but it's, it's not, doesn't happen commonly. Uh, and I take some D I take about a hundred milligrams of that a day in a, 
cacao butter suppository that I make myself and along with five milligrams of DHEA, which is a male hormone, but only five milligrams. I take 20 times more pregnenolone because DHEA can easily aromatize. So you do not want to take too much of that. And, and you, you know, you know, can form estrogen, which is not a good thing. So those are two base hormones. You can use progesterone too, which can aromatize, but you know, mostly it's, it's anti-estrogen. That's what you want is you want an anti-estrogen. And estrogen also, aside from increasing the intracellular calcium concentration, it's an anti-metabolite. It slows down your metabolic rate, inhibits your thyroid function. It's bad news bears. It, yeah. it definitely is toxic to, to your body in most, in most cases. Like I said, you do need it sometimes, you know, certainly for reproductive purposes and, and for wound healing, probably other some, but most of the time, you have more than enough to, to fill those roles and, and it's just an excess, especially with all the, the xenoestrogens we're exposed to in the, in the food supply with phthalates and BPAs and BP, BPA cousins. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the, the beauty of what's natural, it's just over people's heads. And the reason why women go into menopause, it's a protective measure. You, you're past this fertility stage of your life mm-hmm. and this toxin that you needed Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for that purpose you don't need anymore so your body naturally goes into a state to protect you by not having so much of it right and and we we break nature and try and maintain what we want and not understanding why do we even do this why does the body do this it's to protect you that's why you go into menopause yeah yeah right and the reason we we recommend hormone replacement therapy because there's some companies that profit from it <laughs> <laughs> but and there's some well-intentioned physicians who believe it. I was one of those physicians in the mid '80s. I mean, I bought it hook, line, and sinker. And they have they, these companies. They they have funding. They're they're very large revenues, and they can create these studies, which is not hard to do. That legitimately that you know accepted in peer-reviewed journals, and they, they've gone over the science. But we know now how you can easily fake those studies and, and get them in some of the best journals in the world. You can see what happened with COVID. I mean, they, they literally controlled the whole narrative by controlling the, the, the peer-reviewed journals, and they still control it. So it's easy to, to spin out studies to support your assertion that this thing is beneficial. So um, I want to jump over to the DHT, though, because there, you're probably not aware of it, but uh, that's somewhat controversial. And and because one of my uh, people I admire and respect for his knowledge base in molecular biology, but also having a really deep understanding of bioenergetic medicine as espoused by Ray Pete, is that uh, is Georgie Dinkoff. And he's actually funded some studies, some animal studies in uh, castration-resistant prostate cancer, castration-resistant, which is like the worst kind, right? Ostensibly thought to be caused by DHT, which we alluded to earlier, but he, he does not buy that. DHT is the really the only androgen that does not aromatize to estrogen. It does yeah. not aromatize at all, zero. It's completely anti-estrogen. Yeah. So he he did these studies with just, I think DHT and progesterone and maybe I, I forget that I, I know DHT was one of them and he was able to reverse terminal cancer in the majority of, of the animals and he did a few trials with this and it they it was so stunning that the lab that he out he did do it himself he doesn't run the lab he pays labs uh to run this these studies and they had to do it three times because they didn't believe the results so his contention is that DHT and other 
really, I guess, uh, pharmaceutical grade hormones like that that are that is, are essentially all saturated. They have no unsaturated bonds in there, so they can't be converted to estrogen. Uh, are really useful tools in the treatment of cancer, and that this theory of DHT causing prostate cancer probably isn't right, and it may be more the estrogen that's the, the primary uh, trigger there, and that and the strategies really need to be directed at anti-estrogen rather than inhibiting <laughs> DHT, which probably is healthy. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, because on our well, we, the way we research, so there's genetics over here, and a bunch of geneticists already knew what EG gene meant, but they couldn't apply it clinically. Mm-hmm. And there's functional medicine over here that said genetics doesn't work. We're not using it as a tool. So we said, let's just open our own clinic and practice on people and learn all anecdotal and of one, one by one by one. Mm-hmm. And so we did see over and over again. Um, and maybe the data, I can dive deeper into the data that you've given me a project to work on now, mm-hmm. right? Which is when we did work on prostate issues, we always saw the, uh, I think it's the SRD5, SRD5A2G that takes your testosterone, converts it into DHT, was always rapid fire fast. And the glucuronidation pathways that clear the DHT were non-existent. So there's a there's something called a copy number variation in mm-hmm. a type of variation in genes, which is, it's not a SNP or a variation, you, you don't even have the gene missing, right? Mm-hmm. And that's possible for what are called the UGTB genes, which are what drive the glucuronidation or clearance of DHT. So this profile existed over and over and over and over again when we were dealing with prostate health patients. Um, so, so, I'm the, gonna... so the gene rec- that was necessary to clear the DHT or at least excessive levels of it was absent. So as absent, a result yeah. of the relative normal high levels. Now that's another version of it too. So you know, I wasn't aware of that. So that could be an issue because anything in excess typically isn't good. So I'm pretty confident that DHT is essential to adjunct it at helping people with, with advanced cancers. It's not a doubt in my mind. I'm, yeah. I'm pretty confident of that. But the, the converse of that, there may be this missing gene that if you have, then you may be going to need other uh, accessory interventions to help clear it once it's done its job. Yeah. So, I mean, I always like new research, new projects. So you've given me one. Mm-hmm. And- I am going to look at this deeper because there's some nuance there. Yeah, yeah. Right. Because DHT is is good. That's the good guy. It really yeah. is. I mean, you. Yeah. But but you know, you, so is water. But if you drink too much water, you're dead. You can have yeah. a and you're, you're having a fatal cardiac arrhythmia. Yeah. Yeah. So wow, that is that is really fascinating. Um, so any other observations you made? From, uh, because you know you you have a, an interesting perspective of running a a, a a DNA analysis company. Yeah. And are you do, now? Maybe we can go there for a moment. Has the technology improved to the point where you're doing the entire genomic sequencing? I know that exists now, so it's not. Too, yeah. It's definitely under five hundred dollars, maybe even as low as two hundred. I don't know at this point in mid two thousand twenty three what the pricing is, but it used to be outrageous. You couldn't do it for billions of dollars, uh, and then it was eventually down to a thousand. But I think it's under five hundred now. Yeah. So it it is, and um, we we've taken a very different approach, which is you can get a full genome sequence, mm-hmm. um, and they usually are around, I would say twelve to fifteen hundred dollars, but 
There's some people that sell them for like five and even below their cost just to collect data. A lot of companies aren't concerned about the test being their business. It's more about the data they can collect and sell. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned 23andMe, their model sells some infotainment level product, but there's a pharma company on the back oh, end. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Sure. You know, so that's the model. Um, but as a commercial viability thing, it's it's probably more like 1500 ish, right? So what we've, even then, even though we have this technology around full genome sequencing, we still see a big gap in accuracy. Mm. So we see that um, if I go head to head with some of the full genome sequences, the call that's being made on some of the more complex uh, variations are not accurate. Mm. And so what we've said is here's the functional genes that actually matter. Mm -hmm. There's about a hundred of them out of the 22,000. Mm -hmm. And the rest of it is like, is my ear connected to my head? I have a mirror, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, so the, the stuff that drives the key pathways, metabolic pathways, uh, detox and inflammatory pathways, hormones, mm -hmm. neurochemicals, uh, it's literally about a hundred genes. Okay. So if you parse down to what's actionable and functional and pathway-based, you can be a lot more accurate, right? You can be a lot more accurate. And in, in fact, you can be certain as opposed to this probability-based type reporting. And, and why, why is that? Because you do multiple assays to confirm it and, and minimize the likelihood that it's misinterpretation? Yeah, multiple assays and you even separate the types of assays. So for example, we talked about the copy number variation, variations, which is like, I'm missing the gene. I don't have it. Or I have an mm -hmm. extra copy. Mm -hmm. Or something as simple as, as a SNP, a spelling mistake. We run those as separate tests. Mm. A full genome sequence takes all of your raw data, and then you have to go and interpret, mm -hmm. right? And uh, we're just finding that still doesn't work. So genetic sequencing isn't where people think it is yet. Mm -hmm. uh, it, there's still a lot of work to be done on improving, improving. And I think at some point it will be ubiquitous, where like it's free and everybody has their genome run, and it's you go to a grocery store and push a genetic button and it tells you what to buy. That's all coming eventually, right? What's, what's your time? What's your projection on the time frame? On uh, so, the the actual sequencing part, I think we're like five years ish out mm -hmm. for the full genome sequence being valuable. Right now, there's a lot of noise in there, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and we're about, I think, seven eight years out from it being kind of like ubiquitous, like I just said. Everybody has access. Okay. Uh, what's really progressing quickly is the genetic therapies, much faster than anyone thought they were going to. Much, mm -hmm. much faster. So, um, literally, I'm in a discussion today, and we know, you know, one of the catalysts that drove that. There was a lot of research that was just done, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, but it can also be used for good. Let's say there's a gentleman I'm talking to now. There's a gene called Foxo3, mm -hmm. which. Um, drives the, this whole process of, you know, three, four million new cells you make a day, uh, the cellular senescence, killing off of dying mutated cells and replacing with healthy ones. If you have a certain variation of the FOXO3 gene, you just do this hyper efficiently. Mm -hmm. So you age much slower. So a, a useful application for gene therapy is why not go into everybody that has the suboptimal version of that gene and give them a gene therapy that accelerates that. And that's actually possible today. And it's actually being delivered to people today, by the way. Mm -hmm. And so this is kind of under the radar. It's kind of like stem cells. It's not allowed in most jurisdictions, but in places mm -hmm. where it is, people are paying a lot of money to get it done. And I think we're going to see a lot more of, we just talked about, you know, if you are estrogen dominant, mm -hmm. as opposed to taking a supplement and measuring through a Dutch test every couple months, whatever, 
What if there's a gene therapy that just blocks the conversion and it's it, it lasts two to three years? So I think that's coming faster than the actual ability to sequence and understand the genome. That's taking a long time. Well, that's genetic engineering. And uh, in many ways, not too different than the GMO that I have strongly banned or heralded or crusaded against and rallied against for the last decade, over the last decade, Um, because it's the law of unintended consequences. Yes, they can do it, but they do it with typically these adenovirus vectors that are not precise and and they they can put the gene there, but they could, who knows what else they're putting in there. You know, so I don't think the technology is there where I would recommend it or certainly consider using it for myself. I'm, I mean, what, what's your take on it? I mean, it just seems to me too dangerous. Too, too- so it's available to me and I haven't done it yet. Yeah. Because right? I don't know. Just like with stem cells, you know, people ran, to the like there was this floodgates open, but now we're learning about if you don't do it right, you can actually cause cancer as opposed yeah, to yeah. treating it, right? So, and I we don't know that yet about this stuff. And I to take a, something as complex as a genome and split it and splice it and not knowing the longitudinal outcome of that. I don't think we're there yet. Yeah. I think I'm not sure that we'll be there in our lifetime. We might be, I mean, things advance, but uh, we might be going into the dark ages uh, in the not too distant future. That's another possibility that, you know, it's, it's great to have these discussions, you know, post COVID and no lockdowns and no vaccine mandates, but we know the next crisis is going to come. And the next yeah. crisis should be significantly worse than we went through. And what we went through was hell for many people. Yeah. Uh, and it shut down the economy. I mean, it literally put the world to a stop. Uh, and and if we get something worse, the next crisis, I mean, you know, all bets are off. I mean, we basically go back to the Middle Ages almost and living you know, pretty simply with not any of the advanced science. Yeah. And I mean, I live in Toronto, so... Oh, not a good place to be when when they shut the electricity off. (laughs) It's not a fun place to be anymore. This country is completely changed. We're right now, we have a federal government that's debating whether or not people should be allowed to buy supplements. Like carte blanche across the board. It's not a question of this particular thing isn't evidence-based. Yeah, It's like they're not safe. We have a regulatory body here that is open for people to complain to when it comes to natural health products, right? It's been open since 1965. Since then, there has been zero reported deaths since 1965. Since this, same, same in the U.S. Same, yeah. Something as benign as uh, Tylenol, 38 deaths a year in Canada. Mm-hmm. But they're saying we should get rid of vitamin D. Yeah. If you, if you go to PubMed... Lipitor, number one prescribed drug, 11,000 publications. Vitamin D has nearly 100,000. It's like 10 times the amount. There's, I don't think there's many things that are as published, but mm-hmm. it's not evidence-based. So this is really what's happening today. And, and th- by the way, this isn't a theory. There was a bill that was passed last month that put this into action. Mm. This is happening already, what they're doing. That's and a surprise. Going- this is the country that essentially shut down the bank accounts of people who fu- who gave Philanthropic support to the truckers and the co- convoy that Canada. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're going to do that. This is no surprprise. This is you know, it is it, actually predictable. Yeah, it's it's predictable. They, they tested with it. They tested it in uh, sort of British Columbia, where Vancouver is for some time. They tested it now. Like they didn't get pushback because Canadians don't push back. Mm-hmm. So now they're saying, okay, bill passed. And what the way they're going to enforce it is. Uh, the licensing cost for a product went from 
a few hundred dollars to a quarter million to half a million dollars. For a supplement, it, a new supplement? Yeah, to, to have a supplement product in the market. And there's about forty to $50,000 of research required for each product. And the if you go to your naturopath who's compounding something where they white label their name on it, they don't even sell $20,000 of, of that product per year. How are they going to pay half a million dollars to get it registered, right? So the, it's a very intentional economic. So that is going to be in effect for all existing products or just new products that are released into the market? Everything across the board, existing. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and what's the likelihood of that passing? Or it is passed and it's just the a bill is passed. Now they're working on implementation. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So there's noise. Yeah. The, 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 the noise across the industry is are naturopaths even going to exist? Like, what is our job going to be? We have nothing yeah. to prescribe, right? And and then next, or you could use food, but they may outlaw that too, and just say you're supposed to eat crickets. Yeah, <laughs> it's probably coming. Yeah, yeah, it's probably coming. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, this is. I love having these discussions because it's kind of like the internet in the early days. You know, it was like the wild, wild west, and it was literally, in my view, one of the best innovations in the history of mankind to have this resource where you can essentially compile human knowledge. And that was Google's initial mission was yeah. to be the storehouse of human knowledge, somewhat like the contemporary mo uh, modern day uh, Library of Alexandria. And it was, for, essentially. I mean, there were other search engines that did it, but Google did it in the, most, in the best way possible. But then they they lost their motto, don't do evil, and they became evil incarnate mm. and leading the global cabal and essentially have um, censored most all this information. I mean, you, you, it, it, people just don't realize. I mean, you could, when you type in a keyword on Google, I mean, you might get millions, tens of millions, hundreds of billions of hits, right? Yeah. But try to look and see how far down you can go. In most cases, you won't be able to go more than a few pages down. Maybe you won't even get 100 results on some of the most popular terms. So if it's not in the first 100 results, it doesn't exist. You can't find it. There's no yeah. way to find it. None. Zero. They, they've, they've essentially eliminated most of the valuable knowledge that has been acquired from, from universal access. You know, They've shut down the library. They burned it. They, they essentially burned it. And yeah. since they control 95% of the searches in the world, you know, that's a big deal. Really big yeah. deal. So I don't know. We kind of went down this rabbit hole. But <laughs> but the reason I mentioned that is that it's just such wonderful to have the opportunity to talk about these advances in science because they do bring major benefits to us to help understand disease and, and give simple, safe, and effective strategies and hopefully inexpensive to, to optimize health, but it's becoming because of governments like Canada and others around the world, the United States is not much better. I think, uh, you know, they're handicapping us and literally sacrificing our health for their agendas, which mm. is, uh, not good. Certainly not. I'm living through it. You know, we yeah, have people yeah. screaming in pain that are saying, well, what am I going to do in two years? And we don't know the answer. Well, you could do what you know a lot of people in California did. You just leave the state. Yeah, um, I mean, a lot of Canadians are leaving for sure. I mean, yeah. it's always been a mystery to me why. I mean, Canadians are very kind, gentle, simple people. In my experience, uh, and you know, they don't like to argue or do crazy things. So uh, they're more susceptible to this type of tyrannical behavior. 
Yeah. Uh, but what has been always a mystery to me is why they would live in an environment where they can't get regular sunshine and optimize their vitamin D naturally. <laughs> because it's just, you can, you cannot get optimal vitamin D in Canada. If you are naked all year round outside, it's not going to work because you're just too far north. So you have to be on vitamin D and now they're going to make it illegal to take vitamin D. Yeah. That, well, maybe they could still prescribe it, I guess. That would be the only way around. So right? Here's the thing is that, that that's the intention that is to put it in allopathic healthcare control. Yeah. But there's already a petition now saying that doctors should not recommend even the most basic micronutrient like vitamin D because yes. of evidence base. And I know this because there's MDs in Toronto that are making noise, getting a petition signed um, to push, push up against Health Canada saying, you can't stop us from saying something that's true. And they are getting pushed back, back yeah. from Health Canada where, you know, it's they're, they're getting audited and reviewed and a yeah, big mess. Huge. So, you know, I thought that we were going to help our audience understand uh, mycotoxins, endotoxins, estrogen, the dangers of some of the hormonal replacement therapies. But the probably the more important part of this <laughs> dialogue is, you know, and I didn't intend it to be that way in any way, shape, or form, but it's just sort of a natural cons consequence of acknowledging the reality in the world that we live in today. Yeah. It's rapidly changing, rapidly evolving. And yeah, you can hope it's not, and you can be in a bubble. And, you know, even though we're in this uh, time of the sequencing that not much is going on, but there, but it, it, in many places like the United States, but in Canada, that's not the case. So just another, you know, maybe the most important, important message from this dialogue is that we need to be very diligent, be prepared and understand that the, the, yeah. these dangerous steps like this are happening in Canada could it, it could be it could not be too long before it's happening in the United States, but those who are in Canada, it, the writing is on the wall. This is happening. This is going to be implemented. I mean, this is a screaming message to all the Canadians to get the heck out of that country and go south. Yeah. Your body was never designed to live north of that border, the U.S. border. In fact, most people in the U.S. are living too far north. I used to live in Chicago, and that's not too far from Canada. It's close enough, yeah. but it's still a little better. But, you know, I think pretty much anything north of 30 degrees latitude is too far north. Yeah. <laughs> and you're probably 60 degrees is the, what is the, the border? I think it's high 50s or 60 degrees. 40, I think it's 49. 49? Okay, 49. Yeah. I thought it was 60. Yeah. 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 30 degrees is still way too high. And anyway, that, that to me, that's the most important message. It's like, it is. And to your point, I'll tell you one last thing, because just when you said it reminded you of this. So I used to be in the marketing industry. Mm -hmm. I helped startup companies grow, which is why I took interest in what we do. And I started it up. Right. And there's this known thing in the marketing industry that before you launch a mass consumer message in the U.S., you first test it in Canada. Mm. And there's certain buckets, there are very specific cities you go to, to do very specific things in the right order. Mm -hmm. And when I think about it, because I just heard you say like, oh, it may be coming here. I just realized the exact same thing is being done. Oh, they're doing that same strategy because they're not the same strategy. Marketing, is marketing. Yeah. It's universally truth, truthful. Yeah. It's a science that clearly works. So if we can do it to market things in the US, why wouldn't they use it? To, to market this strategy for their plans on launching in the U.S. 
Yep. You launch because Canadian media is isolated. It's big enough to reach enough people. It's isolated enough where it doesn't spill over into the US, right? And there's enough micro markets where you can test one strategy here. And that's why we saw this high variability between what was allowed here and what was allowed here and what was allowed. But it was just a testing ground for what can we yeah. get away. And now that the package has been built, bring it to the US. Yeah, launch it. And that's, I believe, pretty strongly that that's exactly what they did with COVID. COVID was not the end game by any way, shape, or form. It was a very successful trial. This was a, yeah. this was a test for them to see yeah. what they can get away with. And the next one's going to be much, much worse, much worse. Yeah. There's no question. That's the, that's the sequence. That's the pattern. That's what we have to expect for. So I think understanding that, being aware of it, be prepared. So I'm looking forward to your move to uh, south of the Canadian border. Yeah. yeah, if you have a guest room, I'll be down. <laughs> <laughs> now, you got to get your company out of there, man. It's just like crazy. You, 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 don't, you don't want to live in a tyrannical regimen. But yeah, I think most of the world is going there. You know, it's just a matter of time. Canada may beat the U.S., but essentially, I mean, uh, that the U.S. is going to follow in, invariably, as will most of the countries in the world, as they did in, co in the COVID. And we've yeah. got the bill now with the World Health Organization supposedly having the authority to not only declare a pandemic, but to dictate what the measures for that response will be across yeah. the entire world, all loss of natural sovereignty. So yeah. that's a sad inevitability. It appears it's right around, right on the horizon. So, yeah. All right. So it's amazing how these discussions go back to <laughs> the global cabal and the global reset, but it, it, it tends to because that's what's facing us. But anyway, thanks for all you're doing. Your company again now is the DNA company, right? And the DNA company. And uh, if anybody's interested in testing, I just realized that I wanted to honor your time. Thank you for listening. You know, don't go to the website. We'll get you a, a discount code to, for this particular audience. So okay. go to the dnacompany.com forward slash Marcola. Okay. And I'll get that set up. I just, you know, realized that on a whim. So I'll make sure that our, our team does that. Um, All right. Perfect. In, in terms of our book that came out, it's the dnaway.com. So if any, so we just separated that, if you're just wanted to learn more, you know, not be tested, but just learn, it's the dnaway.com. Okay, good. Yeah, it's a definitely powerful information and that can really serve and it's not terribly expensive and it can serve as a uh, a tool, a resource to help guide your process through some of the, your, 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 not process, but your journey, your strategy for some, especially of a complex illness, you know, but, but I think all, uh, fundamentally, it's just like when Phil Jordan used to coach the Bulls and they had the best basketball player, the GOAT, guess greatest in my view, the, the greatest of all time, Michael Jordan, but they still weren't winning national championships right. with Michael Jordan until Phil came along because he drilled them on the fundamental basics. And what does it have to do with this? Well, it's the fundamentals. You've got to do the basics first. And DNA testing is, is something that can be useful, but it's not the fundamentals. You know, you've got to get your diet dialed in. You got to get your exercise, you got your sleep. And get those and then you go to the next step so you got to do the fundamentals first and you know that's what i think is so crucial and usually the fundamentals are close to free if not free themselves like sunshine yeah. is they don't charge you for sunshine <laughs> you know but you know and it does so many more things than vitamin d you know it has it has at least half a dozen other major benefits that sure. are almost every one of them nearly as important as vitamin d but vitamin d is important big time for sure all right. Well, thanks again, Kashif. Uh, appreciate your time and uh, the insights about the impending disaster to be launched in Canada. 
gosh. Yep. We're gonna have to do a lead story on that. I somehow I missed that. I did not was not aware of that. Yeah, I'll send you some stuff. It's it's great. Be, be, you missed it because the again the media is segregated and separated, separated, so you're not seeing it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it did not come across my radar at all. Yeah. So yeah, I'll send me some it. articles on it. We'll 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 alert the world of what's what's sure. impending for sure. Cool. Okay. Well, thanks a lot. All right. Pleasure. All right. Bye now. All right.